I start wondering which one will kill me first. The gun to my head, or the pills and scotch I had an hour ago. I'm not holding the gun. My brother is. My brother doesn't have many social graces when it comes to the living. My other brother did, but he's dead. Dead makes me think of dirt, makes me think of funerals, makes me think of my father. My father was a practical man. He always said that there were only three people everyone would have to meet. A doctor, a lawyer, and a mortician. It's no surprise what occupations his three sons ended up in. Tommy is the doctor, Mike is the mortician, and Danny, well, I'm the lawyer. Dad worked his ass off to send us to school. It should also be noted that Dad worked his ass off just to sit on it and drink beer when he retired. He always said he had earned it. Dad said a lot. It was either listen to him or get beat by him. My brothers and I are excellent listeners. Our childhoods were about as normal as you could get, except Christmas. Christmas held both intoxicating exhilaration and crushing despair. Our eyes bright and our hands eager, we tear through the presents like savannah lions do young stupid zebras. As always, Tommy would get black plastic suitcases filled with fake stethoscopes and those things you look in ears with. Mike would get those weird kits that let boys bake self-made monsters in an easy-bake oven. I would get legal pads and really nice pens. Our respective closets were piled high and full with the subtle hints we had unwrapped every year. Every year we'd ask the mall Santa, his eyes overwhelmed by a bourbon haze and apathy, for new bikes, BB guns, and candy cigarettes. Every year we tried to open each other's gifts just to break up the monotony. Monotony makes me think of ruts, makes me think of life, makes me think about suicide. Right now, Mike is holding the gun to my head. He doesn't know how the ten-year-age Chevis Regal and Vicodins are making it hard to concentrate. He doesn't know how this is Try 24. He doesn't know I talked to Tommy before he died. Before I'll die. Before Mike lost his fucking mind. Before Mike doesn't get the money. Money makes me think of bills, makes me think of tuition, makes me think of law school. After the first year, I almost died. Right before Christmas break, I went out with some friends to celebrate the end of finals. I drank. A lot. I remember drinking. I don't remember getting to the hospital because my friends were afraid when I wouldn't wake up. I did. Two days later. I remember not caring. I remember three months later, after I flunked a civics class, trying to hang myself. I hated the feeling of choking. I hated the explanations I had to make up about the deep purple bruises around my neck. I defend people for a living, and I hate it. I hate defending myself even more. Bruises make me think of hitting, makes me think of fighting, makes me think of that time I had to get Tommy and Mike out of jail. I had just passed the bar exam. They took me out to celebrate. I took them out. Tommy hit resident status, and Mike had nailed an assistant job to the owner of a large mortuary chain. Life was good. Good until they started fighting. She loved you, and you always shit on her. You were jealous I had her and not you. You smug. Do something. Whiskey had this effect on us. I stumbled to the bathroom and wandered around a bit, forgetting if I came in there to piss or puke. Both. Not at the same time, thank the Lord. By the time I finished up, washed off, and walked out, three cops were subduing my brothers. Broken glass shimmered at their feet, and both their faces were bloated and bloody. They got carted down to detox, and I had to drive drunk to get them out and home. The cop kept asking me if I was all right. Being forced to defend my family drunk as a definition of all right was not the answer I think he was looking for. I said, sure. I said, whatever. They fell asleep together in the back seat. I wanted to plow the car into a telepo 
telephone pole doing 90. That was the last time I saw Mike and Tommy before the funeral, before the will reading. Reading makes me think of speaking, makes me think of speeches, makes me think of eulogies. Tommy, the oldest, went first. He started with an awkward joke about knowing his dad his entire life. It was received by muffled coughs. It's a good thing dad was dead because this would have killed him. Tommy talked about the man with a vision, a man with vision enough to ensure his sons fell into life on both feet. Tommy was so full of shit. So was I. I talked about Dad like he was Jesus. I said we were lucky to have him and his support. I said I wished he was still with us to see his sons carry on his legacy. In my head, the word legacy was replaced with cross. I pinched my leg through my pants pocket and squirted out a, squirted out a couple of tears just in case there were any single women in the crowd. Mike made everyone gasp. Mike was honest. Mike said the old man was a monster with control issues. Mike said he thought his dad's dick was microscopic. Dad said he made his sons do what he couldn't and thought he should burn in hell for it. Mike took a flask out and drank hard from it in front of God and everyone else. They had to escort him from the pulpit. I thought he and the priest were going to throw punches. I swear. Swearing makes me think of Tommy, makes me think of the phone call, makes me think of the Makes me think of poor dumb Mike. Poor dumb Mike is screaming at me. He's screaming about how Tommy was a pussy, and that's why he shot him. Somewhere in some hotel room, Tommy is cold and dead. I was always jealous of Tommy. Mike keeps screaming. I try to look up, but he drives the gun barrel harder into my temple. Mike wants the money. In my head, I hear a phone ring. Mike wants out. Mike is sick of putting lipstick and mascara and suits and ugly dresses on corpses. In my head, in another hotel room, I pick up the phone. Tommy is crying and hysterical and saying fuck every other word. Tommy tells me it's about Dad's autopsy. He tells me about when the ambulance found Dad. He tells me to look into Dad's bank accounts. I hang up. I go to the bank, and while Mike visits Tommy and shoots him. At the bank, I find out Dad had massive social security checks. I find out Dad took out equally massive withdrawals. I find myself putting it all together. I find myself laughing as I head back to my hotel room. I take out all of the scotch from the minibar and empty out the personable little orange bottle of Vicodin. It goes down my throat and makes me feel warm inside. No note. Just a knock at the door and a gun being shoved in my face. No explanation. Explanations make me think of Mike, makes me think of being down on my knees, and all-knowing makes me think of screaming at Mike to shut the fuck up. He actually stops babbling about whatever batshit crazy new rant he's on and looks down at me. I tell him Dad doesn't have any money. I tell him the 911 call was from a stripper. Dad died at the oral office. Dad died getting a blowjob from a two-grand hooker with an edible name. Dad died with a heady armful of black tar heroin in him. Dad was living the life until he died. Died makes me think of blackness, makes me think of my vision, makes me think of the end is near. Mike backs off and makes a face like a fish out of water. He spins around and screams words no church girl, churchgoer would want to have written here. He says motherfucker. He says cocksucker. He says whore liquor. I think he made that last one up. My head feels like a pillowcase full of rocks, and Mike jamming the gun back at it isn't helping. He says we'll both die poor. He says, I'll go first. I tell him, I mumbled at him, that I think I beat him to it. I say there'll be no 25. I say Elvis has left the building. Before I shuffle off this mortal coil, I see a bright light and hear thunder. I hear what could be angels singing. I must be dead, I think. Thinking makes me think of, well, thinking. 
It means I'm still alive. The room is stark white and sterile and makes me nauseous. The backless paper gown makes my ass and legs itch. I open my eyes and instead of the afterlife, I'm greeted by two oily lupine cops. They tell me both my brothers are dead. They tell me what I thought was an out-of-body trip to heaven was the gunfire of Mike blowing his own brains out. I say sure. I say whatever. They tell me it's over. They tell me I can leave the hospital when I fill out a statement. My statement. When the cops hand me the form and the nurse hands me a pen, I write, My dad was an asshole. A drug-addled, horny asshole. My brothers were assholes. Now they're dead and I have no one left. I'm an asshole. I just want enough morphine to take home to get the job done. I just want to be left alone and not told what to do or who to defend. I write, I hate it here. I sign it and hand it back to them. They look at me as if I, as I ask the nurse if they have any morphine they can give me. I smile and I say I'm in a lot of pain. That was Three Sons. My name is Doug and this is Mr. Wright. This episode is about influences. Now, there's an interesting story about influences and tracking down your influences as a writer. It's uh, an, an anecdote that I heard in college, probably my junior year when I was getting into my majors courses for um, my English degree, that there was a story about Lord Byron uh, tracking down uh, Percy Shelley because he was so influenced by him he wanted to become his friend. That stuck with me. In that, I started tracking down my influences, and this will tie back to the piece eventually, so don't think I've forgotten that. I tracked down my three major influences, which, if I've never talked about it before on the show, are, not in any specific order, Warren Ellis, Chuck Palahniuk, and Hunter S. Thompson. I tracked all three of them down. Actually, that's not true. One of them tracked me down, and therein lies the story. Um, I'm going to tell the stories about how I came across all three of my influences as I tracked them down to become quote-unquote friends with them. I'm not BFFs with any of them, um, but I do uh, used to regularly talk to uh, two of them. The first off is Warren Ellis, who was a massive, massive influence on me. Um, look him up. He's written a couple of novels, Crooked Little Vein, Gun Machine. He's written the comics, uh, the graphic novels, uh, Transmetropolitan, Planetary. He's worked with Marvel. He's worked at DC. He's considered a writer's writer within the comics industry. Uh, Warren Ellis, I emailed and asked him about advice for a writer, and he emailed me back in a writerly way, poli politely talking, uh, politely told me to fuck off. I immediately answered, politely telling him to fuck off. Uh, he wrote back, you obviously must be a writer. You were very cogent and uh, articulate in terms of telling me to fuck off. And that started the development of talking to Warren about writing, as well as his invitation for me to jo join the now-defunct uh, WEF, or Warren Ellis Forum, uh, which birthed uh, Matt Fraction, uh, who's a well-known writer in comics. So I tracked down Warren Ellis. Chuck Palahniuk was kind of a... Weird happy accident. Um, he was doing a reading and signing at the Tatter Cover in Denver. And uh, I went, uh, obviously, to just be there. Um, and I had a, a friend of the family who was the events coordinator there. In between um, some signings and uh, a reading stuff and doing a Q&A, they took a break. And I went down to the little, uh, we probably sort of Starbucks thing in um, the Tatter Cover. And I'd recently had a book come in. A book came in that I ordered called uh, "Everybody Smokes in Hell" by John Ridley. And I'm getting a chai, 
because uh, I'm partial to chai. And I hear, and I'm reading my book in line, and I hear this voice come from behind me going, what are you reading? And I turn around and I go, John Ridley's Everybody Smokes, and oh my God, it's you. And it was, Chuck Palahniuk was in line behind me, um, getting a cup of coffee. We started talking, uh, me trying not to shit my pants, but we end up talking about like, you know, what do I do? Well, I want to be a writer. What are you writing? I said, well, I just finished a novella called 700 Degrees, which is about a narcoleptic arsonist who falls in love with a pyromaniac. And he said, that sounds weird. And I went, can I use that as a blurb? Sidebar real quick, the 700 Degrees will get read on this. Uh, maybe not in its entirety, um, as I originally planned, but it will get read. It's one of my favorite pieces. So uh, Chuck ended up inviting me to The Cult, which was his uh, online writing workshop through his website, and I got immense um, advice and growth as a writer from that um, to the point where I still randomly check in uh, at The Cult um, when I've got something I really want to workshop. And lastly, Hunter S. Thompson. Rest in peace, Hunter. Um, I was writing for altnews.net, um, which if you don't listen to Dan, my old editor from altnews.net has recently contacted me about uh, writing for a website called truthout.org, which I signed that contract. Uh, it was a good contract. But when I was writing at altnews.net, I was writing um, one and then it, it became something else, uh, a political um, op-ed or opinion editorial column um, called The Fixes In, which morphed into All You Need Is Hate. And I was getting online reviews uh, saying I was the cyber equivalent of Hunter S. Thompson, which was a huge, huge thing for me. I then went to go cover the Free Lesel Amman rally at in at the Denver Capitol, which Hunter was talking at. And one of his little PR creatures came out to a press tent and said, is anyone here from, like, online media? We raise our hands, uh, the, the scattered handful of us. Anyone here from altnews.net? I'm the one that raises my hand. Uh, do you know Doug? I'm Doug. And they go, Hunter would like to talk to you. He had read the reviews, wanted to meet me, had a great talk about writing politics, and I talked to him about how I was handed his book Better Than Sex when I was 16, and it changed my brain. And by the end of that conversation, I talked about wanting to follow in his footsteps in terms of gonzo journalism, and he said, don't follow my footsteps, make your own. And that was huge as well. So I've tracked down every one of my major influences. This episode is called Hero Worship. They say never meet your heroes. I've been lucky enough to have talked to three of them, and they're all great. They're all warm, funny, um, honest people. Sometimes a little mean, but sometimes that's not bad. A little bit of tough love, but that's the notes process. Track down who you like. It could be a matter of just emailing them or when they're doing a signing in town, um, track them down, talk to them. Um, I'm known in every Q&A or every time I talk to a writer I like, um, I ask about uh, writer's block and I get multiple answers. And I think I've talked about this on previous shows. Getting into their heads helps you get out of yours. Uh, also, conversely, helps you get into yours. Um, you can use some of their tricks. You can use some of their tips, their advice, their mentoring, their directions, um, their experiences. Not use them as your own by any means, but you can learn from them um, and apply them to become a better writer. That's what I mean about meeting your heroes. 
Um, I will say this piece I wrote, uh, I think my sophomore year in college, and you can tell that there's a definite Chuck Palahniuk uh, influence in A, the minimalist sentence structure, uh, and B, if you see it online, it, it works a lot better, um, and B, the refrains of blank makes me think of blank, makes me think of blank, makes me think of blank. That chorus, that refrain in this, is based on how Chuck Palahniuk wrote Fight Club, that he had the rules in his head and used them as almost a Greek chorus or a song refrain to build a basic structure for the novel Fight Club, which started out as a short story, which I believe was either the fourth or seventh chapter um, of the actual novel. The fact that I was so influenced by uh, Polonik uh, in terms of the refrain and that Greek chorus idea, that's where that comes from in Three Sons. Um, and when I workshopped this uh, through multiple groups, both in the college and outside of that, um, in the cult, and uh, I don't think the Warren Ellis form was going on then, they really liked it. They went, it ties it together. You're using a very quick, effective way of expo expositional segue to move the story along as quick as you need it to or as slow as you need it to um, in terms of what, you know, A leads to B leads to C leads to D leads to this plot point, and then I can work as slow or as fast to get to the next A to B to C to D refrain as I need to. So I did want to bring that up. But find your heroes. It's not always disappointing. I don't care what the old adage says. Um, I mean, they tell you to fuck off. Either tell them to fuck off or do fuck off. It's up to you. Some people are not nice. Um, I know that from a story about meeting uh, Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut, where my friend uh, Andrew was a huge fan. and We went to the Tatter cover to uh, do a, a meet and greet and signing with, with Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know what re-release he was promoting, uh, but he was outside smoking when we walked up, and we were like, oh my god, it's Kurt Vonnegut. And my friend Andrew was like, can you please sign my copy of, I don't know, Breakfast of the Champions or Cat's Cradle or whatever. And basically Vonnegut was like, fuck off, I'm smoking. Um, I'm not to be bothered. And uh, flicked his cigarette at Andrew. Well, that was mean and rude. And then Andrew picked up the cigarette, took a deep drag, let it out slowly as if he was in a movie and flicked it back at Vonnegut. And it looked like Vonnegut's like, there was a fire behind those eyes immediately. And this is Vonnegut had to been like 70, 80. And we had to hold Andrew back. Cause I was like, dude, you're going to punch your hero and kill him. And you don't want that to be on the news or that to be like your defining thing where you a punched out an old guy and B killed a literary treasure. Uh, that Vonnegut is, he's another huge influence. Um, I guess I did meet him technically, but he's um, not really on this list because of this story. And then he was a prick, and we had to hold my friend back to not beat the shit out of him. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time, as long as you're not being like super fanboy and you're cogent, coherent, articulate, mature is the word I want to use on this one, they tend to respect, show them the respect that, you know, you have for them, um, and they'll show you the respect. They know what it's like coming up from the bottom. Uh, I don't mean to quote a Drake song on that one, but they know what it's like to, to be in the muck and the mire and to work themselves up to become Hunter S. Thompson, Chuck Palahniuk, Warren Ellis, not so much Kurt Vonnegut. And they like helping other writers if they're good writers. And if you're not a good writer, they might help you to become a good writer, a better writer. So that's all. Hero worship 
is great. As long as it's not taken to the most inane, weird, stockery, the Riddler and, and Bruce Wayne in um, Batman Forever level. So I'm going to go out on, on that reference. Uh, don't do that. So this is Mr. Wright. I'm Doug. Remember, you keep writing, they'll keep reading. Right on. This has been a Blood Alcohol Content Network production. For more information, visit www.bacnpodcast.com. Your home for almost bacon and banjo!